day. September 12, 1974, Valerie Banks and her backpack were the only ones in class. A court had just ordered the city of Boston to desegregate its public schools. The court said Boston had to begin busing white kids to black schools and black kids to white schools in an effort to force the schools to integrate. Lots of families from white neighborhoods in Boston balked at the idea of sending their kids to school in traditionally black neighborhoods. They balked especially at having black kids come to what had been all white schools. And so that's how young Valerie Banks ended up in the geography classroom all by herself. The first day of school under that court-ordered busing program. White parents just flat out refused to send their kids to school if there were going to be black kids there too. Within a year and a half of busing starting in Boston, a third of white kids got taken out of Boston public schools. And it is painful to see that young girl sitting all by herself in that classroom. But it only got more traumatic for kids like Valerie from there. Black students on their way to school were the target of big racist mobs in Boston, often really violent protests by white people in Boston. They threw rocks at the kids while they got on the bus. Black kids had to duck shattering glass coming at them through the bus windows as the buses were attacked. Here's a woman screaming at a bus full of black children who are being taken home after school. The photographer said she was yelling to those little kids, go home and stay home. Yelling at the little kids. People walked through black neighborhoods in Boston wearing Ku Klux Klan gear. They set a mannequin of a black person on fire, an effigy. This is a building in a white neighborhood in Boston, a message for all the black kids, all the black students being bussed in to see on their way to school every morning. We blurred what the word is, but you know what the word is. The trauma those kids had to endure, it would have been, it would be almost unbelievable if there weren't the pictures to prove it. I remember riding the buses to protect the kids going up to South Boston High School bricks through the window, signs hanging out those buildings, go home, pictures of monkeys, the birds, the spit, people just felt it was all right to attack children. I had no idea what to expect, but I didn't know anything about South Park, I didn't know anything about, you know, they didn't like us, I didn't know anything that was in store for us, but when we got there, it was like a war zone. I came back and I told my mom, and I'll never forget, I said, Mom, I am not going back to that school unless I have a gun. Exactly, at 14 years old. I am not going back to that school. That overt racism, those racist attacks in Boston over busing, it took years before any of that simmered down. But scars for those who lived through it never faded away. Boston remains an incredibly unequal place to live by just about every metric. In 2015, the net worth for a white family, net worth for a white family living in Boston was roughly $250,000. Net worth of a black family living in Boston is an average of $8. The Boston Police Department is 65% white, even though white people make up less than half the city, and still today. If you look at what the city itself is investing in, where they're doling out lucrative contracts of the more than $2 billion handed out by the city between 2014 and 2019 in contracts. One half of 1% of those contracts went to black-owned businesses. And you see it in representation at the highest levels, too. The mayor of Boston has only ever been a white man for all time. For the last 91 years, that white man has been either of Irish or Italian descent, full stop. 91 straight years. 
of Irish American or Italian American men. The city of Boston has never been represented by a black person at the highest level. The city has never been represented by a woman until now. This is Kim Janey. Her family has lived in the Boston neighborhood of Roxbury for six generations. When she was 16 years old, Kim Janey became a mom. She was still in high school. After she graduated high school, she started a community college. She ultimately enrolled at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. She worked a job cleaning bathrooms. While she was a student at Smith's, she could afford tuition and to provide for her daughter. She then spent years as an organizer, an advocate, pushing to reform Boston's public schools. 2017, she was elected to the city council in Boston. She was chosen by her peers then to become the city council's president. That choice was made last year. And as city council president, well, there she was in place. That is how this week Kim Janey became mayor of Boston. The last mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh, just resigned to become President Biden's labor secretary. When the mayor resigns, the line of succession in Boston is that the president of the city council gets automatically elevated to be acting mayor. That makes Kim Janey, as of this week, the first black person to lead the city of Boston, the first woman to lead the city of Boston. She was also one of those Boston kids in the 70s who was pelted with rocks and racial slurs on their way to school. Kim Janey was 11 years old when she got on those desegregation buses in Boston. She was bused to a school in the same part of Boston where they set that mannequin of a black person on fire. Yesterday, yesterday, she went back to that school that she was bused to in 1976. She went back this time on her first full day as the mayor of Boston, Massachusetts. As a girl growing up in Boston, I was nurtured by a family who believed in me and surrounded by good neighbors who knew my name. It was my village. But when I was just 11 years old, school busing rolled into my life. I was forced onto the front lines of the 1970s battle to desegregate Boston public schools. I had rocks and racial slurs thrown at my bus simply for attending school while black. And just yesterday, on my first full day as mayor, I visited my childhood alma mater. I saw students happy to be back in school with their teachers and friends, instead of the pain and trauma that I had experienced in middle school. To think that my teenage grandsons were born at a time when there had never even been a black woman on our city council. And today, my six-year-old granddaughter, Rosie, and other little girls can see themselves represented in Massachusetts' highest court, the halls of Congress, and now in the 55th mayor of Boston. Joining us now for her first national interview since becoming mayor of the great city of Boston is Kim Janey. Uh, Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being here, and congratulations. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I'm a big fan. Thank you for having me. It's nice of you to say. Um, well, let me just ask you, one of, the, one of the things you said in your speech when you're sworn in today um, was that you bring to this moment life experience that is different from the men who came before me. Tell me, tell me about what that means for this job, for the city of Boston, how, how that will influence this incredibly large job you're taking on now. Well, as, as a woman growing up, uh, as a little girl growing up in Roxbury, as a, as a black woman who has lived through some of our darkest days in, in our city, 
Um, I certainly bring all of that with me, um, but I also know that our city is a city of hope and possibilities, um, and so I am encouraged, certainly by uh, what I saw when I visited my childhood alma mater. Uh, as you have said, I, I was bused uh, during uh, the desegregation era uh, here in Boston. It was a very traumatic experience growing up, a very violent time in our city. Uh, and me sitting here as mayor uh, does symbolize how far we've come as a city, uh, but we have a lot of work to do. Yesterday, on my first full day as mayor, I had the opportunity to go back and see uh, young people learning in the classroom. I actually visited a classroom where they were studying uh, desegregation in Boston. And to, to be there in that classroom as someone who lived through that experience and able to share that experience uh, with the students was pretty incredible. And to be there as the first black mayor and the first woman mayor uh, for our city was just mind blowing. Uh, you know, it was great to see uh, students in the classroom learning and engaged and not having to worry about that painful uh, time in our history. That being said, um, we do have a lot of work to do in Boston. Uh, these issues, these challenges are not new. They are centuries old in the making. Uh, there is a lot of work to do when it comes to combating structural racism in our city. And I will bring my lived experience and my unique perspective as a black woman uh, to this work. Part of that was getting back. That last one has become a patchwork of many complex local public policy decisions. The administration has taken some strong steps to try to make it happen. It called on states to prioritize vaccines for teachers. There's $10 billion going to help districts manage the cost of testing. There's $130 billion from that COVID relief package aimed directly at getting K-12 schools to reopen. Today, President Biden announced that $81 billion of those dollars will be released to schools immediately. The president's goal is to open the majority of K-8 schools within his first 100 days in office. So, 63 days in, how close is he to achieving that goal? The person most suited to answer that is the new Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, and he joins me now. Uh, it's great to have you on the show, Secretary. Thank you very much for making time. Um, let's start with where things are, because one of the challenges we've had throughout the pandemic is data. Does the Department of Education know how many kids are in school? How many are in part-time school? How many are remote school? Just as, as a way of starting to figure out what targets you want to hit. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, yes, uh, we know that 76% of the students in pre-K uh, through 8 are at least hybrid. 45% um, are full in-person uh, in school as of now, but we have a ways to go. So you got you got 45% full-time in school. Uh, what is, are there, are there goals about what you want to see happen in the next few months in terms of numbers? You know, Chris, I, I really, I, I want to make sure that we have uh, opportunities for all students to re-engage in in-person learning um, this spring. You know, if we're prioritizing vaccination, we're following those mitigation strategies, we're now, there's $10 billion for surveillance testing, and we know, based on what we've seen, that schools can be safe if the mitigation strategies are followed, we can do it. And I really want us to try for 100%. But I'm pleased with the progress that we're making now. I just think we need to keep our foot on the gas. There, there has been an uh, argument
argument that, that, that some have made, Republicans and conservatives are not exclusively them, uh, that teachers' unions uh, have been uh, overly cautious, overly worried about transmission in schools, and have been a chief obstacle to getting back to in-person learning. You're an educator yourself uh, and, and have been. What do you think about that critique? Listen, teachers have bent over backwards since March of last year, and in my work in Connecticut as commissioner, I've partnered with educators to make sure that we can do it safely. 100% of the districts in Connecticut offer in-person learning because of that partnership. All educators want children in school. They just want it done safely. What does that mean? I mean, I, I guess the question is, has sentiment changed, right? Because, look, the virus is scary. Uh, schools, as we know, as any parent who goes through cold and flu season knows, very transmissible. At the same time, a lot of data has suggested that the levels of transmission are not what you would expect. They have not been huge locusts of outbreaks, but yet people are worried. Like, how much sense do you have, sense do you have of, of how teacher sentiment has shifted and evolved and how much vaccine access has changed that? Well, you know, first of all, we have, it, it, it always helps to have a teacher in the White House because educators uh, are being acknowledged for the work that they're doing and vaccination prioritization for education, uh, for educators is something that the president led with. Um, providing the funding to make sure that schools have supplies for PPE or whatever safeguards are needed to safely re-enter the school. And, you know, the emphasis on those mitigation strategies, all those things are helping build that level of confidence that we can do it. I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, did you have anything to do? What, what were your interactions like with CDC over the three-foot guidance they put out? There was a lot of discussion on that. Obviously, it makes it a deal uh, to change that because schools don't have a huge surfeit of space, particularly in, in, in urban school districts. Anthony Fauci said that was entirely a data-driven decision, but do you liaison with CDC on that? Do you get a heads up? What, what, what is that interaction like? We follow their recommendations. So it, there was no discussion before. There was no, what do you think about this? We follow the science, and we implement safely based on those uh, uh, those guidelines. And I'll tell you, you know, from last March till now, one of the things in those districts that are successful, we just had a summit today, and we heard uh, success stories. One of the things that was a through line is the reliance on health and safety data first. This is a health pandemic. So ensuring health and safety as a priority will always drive our reopening there's been a lot of coverage of the emerging literature and studies of the effects of this past year, unlike any school year, I think, in recent memory, it's safe to say, and the effects of remote learning, particularly remote-only learning, and particularly along lines of race and class uh, in terms of equity. What is your sense, your characterization, your understanding of what the literature and the data are saying about what the effects of a year of remote schooling have been like? Well, you know, it doesn't take, you don't have to look at the research. As parents that we are, I know you have little ones, you can tell when you talk to your little ones the impact that it has not to be around their friends, not to be around their teachers in person. You can only look at a screen for so long, especially if you're an elementary student. So we know that there are effects. That's why with the rescue plan, the funds there to provide good opportunities for students for summer, summer experiences, um, and making sure that when the students do come back to school, we're prepared to meet them with what their challenges were and what their needs are and make sure that our schools are designed better than they were last March to meet the needs of our students, which, as you said, uh, are significantly impacted by this pandemic. There, there's been some, some, some controversy around or, or some debate around standard, standardized testing for understandable reasons. Um, arguments go in both directions, right? One is you 
want to have a guidepost to measure precisely the effects we're talking about. The other is it seems insane to subject schools to standardizing children to standardized testing given the least standardized year in American history. 500 researchers and scholars uh, wrote a letter to you uh, basically saying don't force schools to give standardized tests this pandemic year, uh, that, that, that it made no sense, it would exacerbate inequality to produce flawed data. There will be standardized testing this year. Why, why do you think that's a good idea? You know, this is analogous to the decision, the difficult decision that leaders had to make last July when we talked about reopening schools. We know that there's no one size fits all. You know, when we were thinking about reopening schools, we had very small schools and we had very large schools and states that had high numbers and states that had very low numbers of COVID. So there's no one size fits all. So the flexibilities that were announced uh, by the department last month uh, allow for some of that variance. But let me tell you very clearly that when we're pushing out $130 billion, uh, state level data, uh, not necessarily the classroom data because teachers know where their kids are, but that state level data is gonna ensure that we're providing those funds to those students who are impacted the most by the pandemic. We have to be very focused on addressing that were exacerbated by this. And those data do help to make sure that we're moving the money and the policies to those students that were affected the most, students of color, students with disabilities, who, whose impact by this uh, pandemic was greater than many others. Your anticipation for the fall, I saw an announcement that Governor Phil Murphy in Jersey just announced, I think, that he will not allow any remote education in the fall. I know there are parents who are still hesitant and worried. We don't know the trajectory of vaccines. It seems to me that getting all kids in class makes sense. Uh, do you have a position? Does the department have a position on that? You know, it's premature to tell. One thing that I know as a former commissioner uh, of education, COVID-19 numbers will dictate how we move to reopening schools. So it's not just about what's happening in the schools. It's about what's happening in the community. If as uh, members of our community, we can follow those mitigation strategies, make sure that our schools are safe places for our students and for our staff, we should have students in school uh, next year. We should have them in school in the spring. I really want to move forward this spring to safely reopen schools as much as possible. For K-8, it's a goal, but we also know we have high schoolers that are waiting for their drama club to start, for their bands, for those uh, graduation ceremonies that are so important. So we really need to make sure we're following the mitigation strategies and doing everything to get our students in school now. In a state of emergency as we come on the air, the deadly tornado outbreak tearing across the south. There have been multiple fatalities confirmed. And the images of destruction just coming in, the force leveling homes, the dangerous system on the move, 32 million at risk, and the major threats as we head into the night. Al Roker is tracking it for us. Also tonight, President Biden's first news conference dominated by the challenges at the border. The president defending his handling of the migrant surge, what he said about those images, unaccompanied children packed into holding facilities, and his decision to let them stay in the U.S. Plus, the news he made, will he run again in 2024? With the COVID crisis, President Biden doubling his goal, 200 million vaccinations in his first 100 days. It comes as cases now rise in over half the state, and the university telling students they must be vaccinated for the fall. By exclusive with Pfizer as the company announces its first vaccine tests in young children, the suspect in the Boulder mass shooting, his first court appearance in a wheelchair, and remembering the victims. And after a year-long delay, the countdown to the Tokyo Olympics finally begins. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt.
is going to be a restless and possibly dangerous night across a big part of the south where tornado watches and warnings have been posted. The severe weather has killed at least three people in Alabama. Early pictures showing major destruction and forecasters warning of the potential for more severe weather, including flash flooding well into the night across several states. Al Roker will tell us who is at risk in a moment, but first a late report from Kerry Sanders in Alabama. Tornado on the ground right in front of me, going up this mountain. Tonight, at least three people killed by tornadoes in Alabama, and fears of possibly more touchdowns through the night. Already, as many as a dozen unconfirmed tornadoes causing widespread damage in Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia. And even though residents were aware of the threat as early as last night, not all moved fast enough to escape. 74-year-old James Dunaway ignored the alert on his cell phone. I was out there watching uh, the president on TV. It was about a minute left. He was just about to finish, and the power flickered off. He survived without serious injury, as did his neighbors. It's Trish Partridge's birthday today. Instead of celebrating, she was hiding downstairs with her husband. In a closet. In a closet. You got in the closet. And put mixing bones on her head. <laughs> Metal mixing bones, yeah. And we heard it, and I said, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's gone. Tonight, conditions remain prime for yet more tornadoes. It was eight days ago when as many as 49 twisters hammered this region of the country. With the threat tonight of more tornadoes in the darkness, emergency officials are encouraging residents to sleep with their cell phones by their beds in case another alert goes off. Lester? All right, Kerry Sanders tonight, thank you. And Al Roker is tracking it all for us. Al, how is this shaping up? Lester, this is a volatile situation. Tornado watches up. In fact, one labeled a particularly dangerous situation as this system pushes to the east. High risk today and into tonight for 32 million people for dangerous winds, hail, and tornadoes. We've had two high risks in March. The last time that happened, 1991. 102 million people from the Gulf all the way to the upper Midwest and the Northeast up for gusts of 60 miles per hour. Down trees, power outages possible. We have flash flood watches in effect for multiple rounds of rain for the Tennessee and Mississippi River Valleys. Anywhere from two to four inches of rain. We'll continue to track it tonight and have a complete report tomorrow morning on today. Lester? We'll be watching, Al. Thank you. President Biden held his first formal news conference today, doubling down on how many vaccine shots he now expects in the first 100 days in office. But two other issues dominated today immigration, and how far the president is willing to go to push the Senate to see through his agenda. Kristen Welker was in the news conference. At his first press conference since taking office, President Biden laying out a new target for COVID vaccinations, 200 million shots in his first 100 days. I know it's ambitious, twice our original goal, but no other country in the world has even come close, not even close to what we were doing. I believe we can do it. But with more than 130 million shots already administered, the U.S. is on pace to beat that benchmark. Still, administration officials stress hitting that target will require vaccinating people in hard-to-reach communities quickly. The president faced a flurry of questions about some of the most pressing issues, including the surge of migrants at the southern border. I guess I should be flattered people are coming because I'm the nice guy. <laughs> it happens every single solitary year. But his own DHS secretary says the administration is bracing for a surge not seen in 20 years, with nearly 5,000 children currently being held at border facilities, most longer than the law allows. 
the idea that I'm going to say, which I would never do, that an unaccompanied child ends up at the border, we're just going to let him starve to death and stay on the other side. No previous administration did that either, except Trump. Uh. I'm not going to do it. And while the administration let our cameras into one detention center, we pressed the president. When will the public see what is happening at the centers that are overcrowded? Will you commit to transparency on this? I will commit to transparency. And as soon as I am in a position to be able to implement what we're doing right now. So this is being set up, and you'll have full access to everything once we get this thing moving. President Biden reversed some controversial Trump-era policies on his first day in office, including scrapping one that mandated migrants wait in Mexico while their asylum claims are processed. Tonight, insisting he has no regrets. Did you move too quickly to roll back some of the executive orders of your predecessor? First of all, all the policies that are underway were not helping at all. I make no apologies for that. Mr. Biden, who has an ambitious agenda from new gun restrictions to immigration reform and climate change, left the door open to getting rid of the filibuster, which requires a 60-vote margin in the Senate to pass bills. And if we have to, if there's complete lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster, then we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. The president flashing anger when asked about Republican efforts to limit voting rights. What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. It's sick. And Mr. Biden, who is the oldest president in history at 78, swatting away questions about whether he plans to seek re-election. You haven't set up a re-election campaign yet, as your predecessor had by this time. <laughs> My predecessor needed to. Needed to. <laughs> My predecessor. Oh, God, I miss him. Um, no, the answer is yes. My plan is to run for re-election. That's my expectation. Kristen, I know you also asked the president about North Korea, which tested two ballistic missiles this week. What did he have to say? Lester, the president called North Korea the top foreign policy issue and vowed consequences if the country escalates. Meanwhile, on Afghanistan, the president said it would be hard to meet a May 1st deadline to withdraw troops set under former President Trump. Lester. All right, Kristen Welker, thanks very much. Let's bring in Chuck Todd now, moderator of Meet the Press. Chuck, we've just been talking about what the president did say. What about what was left out today? What struck you? Well, it's the issue of COVID. I mean, when you actually divide up the press conference, there was the news they intended to make, and then there's the category of unintentional news, which we're all trying to figure out if he made any. I don't think he made any unintentional news. The intentional news was announcing the 200 million vaccine doses on his first 100 days. And a reporter didn't have a single question about vaccine distribution, international vaccines, the COVID economy, nothing. There were questions about all these other topics. Biden mm -hmm. was very careful not to actually advance the ball on any of those. He said new words and phrases, but did he really actually announce anything concrete? No. And the fact that there was no COVID question, well, in some ways, that's a, uh, a reflection that maybe COVID's going pretty well for Biden. Interesting observation. Chuck Todd, thank you. In just 60 seconds, we're at the border with a reality check after the president's remarks today, and I speak exclusively to a top Pfizer official about getting kids vaccinated. At today's news conference, the president suggested the migrant surge we're seeing is comparable to those of past years. But there is more to the numbers. Gabe Gutierrez is in Texas and has a reality check. With more unaccompanied
unaccompanied migrant children arriving at the U.S. border. President Biden is defending his decision to let them stay. The only people we're not going to let sitting there on the other side of the Rio Grande by themselves with no help are children. He insists there's no crisis and that surges are seasonal. There is a significant increase in the number of people coming to the border in the winter months. This year, between January and February, there was a 28% increase in border apprehension. In 2019, during the same period, the increase was 31%. But the overall numbers this year are higher, 100,000 in February, compared to 76,000 in 2019. The Biden administration says that's partly due to migrants having delayed their trips during the pandemic. Okay. What's alarming, though, is the higher number of unaccompanied minors this time around. There's now more than 16,000 in federal custody, some held in facilities like this one. Children are harder to care for. And the Department of Health and Human Services says that it has fewer beds due to COVID. In this HHS facility we toured here in Carrizo Springs, we saw teen boys playing soccer and going to class. Now the rush is on to set up new temporary housing in San Diego, Dallas, Midland, and Pecos, Texas, plus military bases in San Antonio and El Paso. Today we learned from administration officials that migrant children are not being tested for COVID in Border Patrol stations, where they're spending days in crowded conditions. They are tested once they're moved to less crowded HHS facilities like this one. More than 100 teenagers have tested positive here, Lester. All right, Gabe Gutierrez tonight, thank you. There is real urgency to getting many more Americans vaccinated and more quickly. More than 87 million have now received at least one shot. But it's those other numbers driving real concerns tonight, the number of new infections. With more on that, here's Miguel Almaguer. Tonight, for the first time in months, states in more than half the nation are now reporting a climb in new COVID cases. While Michigan is home to the highest spike, 106% over the last two weeks. In Minnesota, authorities confirm 89 breakthrough infections in people after they were fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, a troubling new report shows in 13 states, coronavirus hospitalizations are on the rise. So every day, um, I see numbers for our hospital, for the other hospitals in our system, and it's all going up. I've seen people who look good one day, and the next day they're, you know, incubated. With 1,000 Americans still dying every day from the virus, the race between variants and vaccinations is at a critical crossroads. After safety regulators questioned their early data, AstraZeneca revised its vaccine efficacy down from 79% to 76%, perhaps undermining public confidence. It comes as Rutgers University announces vaccinations will be required for students who attend in the fall. More than 40 states plan to offer vaccines to all adults by May 1st. I've been waiting a long time and I finally got it, so I'm ready. Here in California, effective next month, anyone 16 and over can be vaccinated. The majority of new infections are those under 50, while the majority of new deaths are those over 50. Lester? All right, Miguel, thanks. Three months or months, I should say, after beginning COVID vaccine trials in children ages 12 to 15, Pfizer announcing today it has begun trials in even younger kids, starting with 5 to 11-year-olds and later expanding to infants as young as six months. I spoke about it with pediatrician Dr. Bill Gruber, who oversees the company's clinical trials for children. We started to vaccinate in a phase one trial, children five to 11 years of age, and we plan to move down progressively.
possibly uh, to children as young as six months of age. Pfizer says they will test kids in three age groups in the U.S. and Europe. Are these children getting the same vaccine that, that's currently being administered to adults? Yeah, so it's the same vaccine, but we take a very deliberate and careful approach to assure ourselves of the safety and how well the vaccine can be tolerated in young children. So as we move down into the 5 to 11-year-olds, we'll start with a somewhat lower dose, and then we will move forward to a mid-sized dose and then to an adult dose. What's the earliest we could see vaccines being authorized for use in children? Our goal is to get this information submitted to the FDA as soon as possible. If all goes as planned, uh, the vaccine uh, for 12 to 15 year olds could be ready as soon as the start of the next school year. Can we reach herd immunity if we don't get kids vaccinated? Uh, I think adding the school age population based on recommendations from the FDA and the CDC could go a long way in helping us reach herd protection. And what are kids asking? Will there be side effects just like there is for adults? We know that only a small proportion of adults have fever or chills, and we're working very deliberately to try to make sure that as we move down into children, that they don't have reactions that are greater than those that are seen in adults. Right now you have real-world data, if you will, on the vaccine in terms of the adult population. Does any of that give you greater confidence that this will be equally as effective with children? I think we need to see what the immune response uh, in children is, uh, specifically how much antibody they make that can kill the virus. Is it comparable to what we see in adults? If it is, then I think we have uh, reason to have great confidence that the vaccine will likely protect children as well as it does adults. More kids' questions answered on all this on the latest Nightly News Kids edition. In Boulder, Colorado, the 21-year-old man accused of killing 10 people at a supermarket Monday appeared in court for the first time. His lawyer said he has a mental illness that needs to be assessed. While at the station where fallen officer Eric Talley served, his police car is now a makeshift memorial. Up next, a sign of hope as the Olympic torch relay begins. <sighs> After it was delayed a year, the Olympic torch relay is off and running, the biggest test yet for organizers of this summer's games. Here's Keir Simmons. The Olympic torch lit at last. Day two of the relay getting underway tonight under increased scrutiny. It will go to every corner of the country and pass between 10,000 torchbearers, raising hopes and fears. Polls show 60 to 80% of the Japanese public want the games to be postponed or cancelled. But the flame was kept alight in Japan for 12 difficult months. The relay finally kicking off in Fukushima, ground zero of a disaster a decade ago. Athletes like Team USA pole vaulter Sandy Morris say it's a sign of hope. It's happening, which must feel pretty good. It does, because we've had a lot of disappointments. It will be an Olympics like no other. International spectators will not be allowed. Will it affect your performance? I'm not going to lie. It's going to be very hard, and maybe some of the performances might suffer. But for millions watching around the world, this flame, Olympic organizers say, represents the sunrise on a new era. We're going to go out there as a team, wanting to step out on the field of play and do something to the very best of our ability. That is what the Olympics is about. Kia Simmons, NBC News.
So tonight, a glimpse into the life of Pope Francis like you've never seen from a documentary about to air in the U.S. Ann Thompson has a first look. Like its subject, controversy follows the documentary Francesco. I'm convinced that we can make a difference. The film streaming on Discovery Plus Sunday ignited a firestorm last October, revealing Pope Francis' previously unaired support for civil unions. The Pope saying homosexuals have a right to be part of the family, unearthed by producer-director Yevgeny Opinetsky. There were people who said, you took things out of context. What he said, we should create a civil union to protect it. So he's not endorsing marriages. He's not changing the doctrine. No church approval of same-sex marriage, reiterated in the Vatican's decision last week, barring priests from blessing such unions. Juan Carlos Cruz, a gay man and clergy sex abuse survivor, is a friend of Francis. He said, Juan Carlos, you have to understand that God made you gay. God loves you like you are. The film shows how Cruz's persistence helped the Pope do a 180 on the sex abuse scandal in Chile, going from denial to an extraordinary apology. That's what I'm admiring in him. He is a leader who's seeking transparency. Offering clarity in the mystery of faith. Ann Thompson, NBC News. Up next, saluting recipients of our highest military honor. Finally, some profiles in courage and sacrifice on this National Medal of Honor Day. Here's Peter Alexander. It's our nation's highest and most prestigious military honor, awarded to service members who put their lives at risk above and beyond the call of duty. Their courage almost defies imagination. At the memorial to Abraham Lincoln, who founded the Medal of Honor, we spoke this week with two recipients about bravery on the battlefield. What's different about the Medal of Honor is that it's representative of something much higher than yourself. Lieutenant Colonel William Swenson, that's him during a 2009 firefight in Afghanistan, leading a team to rescue fellow troops and search for the missing. Major General Pat Brady, who flew over 2,000 combat missions in Vietnam and rescued over 5,000 injured soldiers. Patriotism is not just saying you love your country. A patriot is someone who would support and defend your country. Their story is the foundation for the National Medal of Honor Museum, a permanent home for their acts of heroism. Veterans, they're not really interested in themselves. They're more interested in what they can pass on to the, the values that they represent. The structure itself symbolizing strength, a massive slab of steel appearing to float in the sky. The museum, to open in 2024, will be built near Dallas. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones pledging $20 million for the project. Of more than 3,500 recipients, today just 69 are still living. It's an honor to be in the military. It's an honor to represent your country, to represent your, your service, and to serve alongside some of the finest Americans that you will ever find. A vault for our values, like sacrifice and selflessness. Peter Alexander, NBC News, Washington. That's nightly news for this Thursday. Thank you for watching, everyone. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night.